right. Wonderful to see all of you today. Wonderful to see all the little people. I love all the little guys coming in and out. That's tremendous. Well, I have, uh, I have hundreds of fond memories of my father. He was a great dad. He's been gone for many years now. Died in 1995. But uh, he was a great dad in many, many ways. Taught me a lot. He loved the Lord. He was faithful and dedicated to the Lord. Both of my parents were faithful to the local church and were actively involved. Dad had a, he had a tremendous tenor voice. And uh, he, uh, he was also a very insightful theologian. Uh, he had many little phrases and quotes that he, would, uh, that he would repeat at certain times, and he said them often enough that I still remember a great many of them. Occasionally, we would run into a person who was a little stuck on himself, and perhaps a little puffed up about his accomplishments, and uh, afterward, uh, Dad would say with a bit of dry sarcasm, Sounds like he's writing his book, Humility and How I Obtained It in Ten Easy Lessons. And you may have heard the very true quote, Pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. Let that sink in for just a second. Okay. And uh, in, in our passage for this week, the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples lessons on humility. Uh, the culture in which you and I live talks about humility, but doesn't really promote it much. Uh, what our culture tends to promote is a very me-centered approach to life. You've got to take care of number one, as folks say, because you can't take care of anyone else if you don't take care of yourself first. Well, you know, I, I understand what folks may mean when they say that, but I'm not convinced that's a biblical perspective. And I don't hear it as much anymore, but we used to hear folks talking about needing me time. Again, I get what they're saying. After a time of challenging ministry, Jesus told his disciples to come apart and rest a while, meaning separate yourself from the busyness of ministry and rest for a few days. But Jesus never said, you really need this for you. Uh, there's, there's just always a, a different focus in the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Now, we do have the Sabbath concept in the Scripture, work six and rest one. Do that as a regular part of your life schedule. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, presumably so we wouldn't work ourselves into the ground. But there is still not a me focus in the Scripture. Dying to self and self-denial, however, is a very common theme in the Word of God. In the, the human heart, especially every human heart that has not been touched by the grace of God, uh, every human heart is a relentless worshiper of itself. It is the nature of man to be dominated by pride. It, it is so subtle in the ways that pride expresses itself. And modern psychology has developed this, this very interesting and I believe backwards emphasis in our society in that it tends to diagnose a number, an enormous number of problems as a lack of self-esteem. And they define self-esteem as how much you value yourself, how much you appreciate yourself, how much you like or love yourself. And so, and that's not my definition, that's their definition. So self-esteem, as modern psychology defines it, is biblically rooted in our pride. And pride takes so many subtle forms. I mean, I, 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 would never, I would never counsel anyone by telling them that they just need to learn to love themselves more. 
Self-love is part of our problem, not part of our solution. Uh, that's, a, that's a very unpopular concept in our modern psychologized society. So if I am confronting some of your dearly held opinions, thank you for not throwing songbooks at me. Uh, but but we, all, we all struggle with pride. It's, it's very sneaky. It's very subtle. It takes so many forms. Selfishness, superiority attitudes, rebellion against authority, an unteachable spirit, uh, a sense of self-righteousness, a spirit of independence, meaning I can just handle it all by myself. I'm, I'm almost always right. Of course, we would never openly say we're always right because then people would know that we're proud. So we just say I'm almost always right. And uh, pe people say often it's my way or the highway. On, on and on we could go. All sorts of all sorts of sneaky, subtle ways that pride comes into our lives, you know. But nobody, nobody, biblically, needs to love themselves more. We all tend to be consumed with our own needs and wants and desires and cravings, and, and it's only the grace of God that helps us to confront ourselves and our self-focus. Let me read just a few scriptures to you, then we'll look at our passage in Mark 9 in just a moment. I'll just read these to you. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2. God speaking here, But on this one I will look, says the Lord, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, meaning a repentant spirit, and one who trembles at my word, who has awesome reference for me. God says, that's the one I'm going to look on. The person who has a repentant spirit and the person who has an awesome reverence for what I say. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, relatively well known. There's even a little song written to this, uh, to, to this verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, Paul writes, to, write, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. The word there, lowliness, same word translated humility in other passages. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, Humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. James chapter 4, a couple of verses there. Verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And you know, it's very interesting as you read through the Bible, if you study the concept of, of, of humility throughout the Scripture, you will not find in the Bible the phrase, be humble. People say that many times. Now, be humble. You never find that phrase in the Bible, be humble. You will, however, find many, many, many times the phrase, humble yourself. Again, it's a different focus. Not be humble, but humble yourself. You see, as soon as we begin to think that we are humble, it means that we're not. I'm just so proud of myself for being humble. I mean, it's so, it's so sneaky. God, God, God says, humble yourself, meaning make a conscious decision 
to place others ahead of yourself. That's the clear teaching of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, Paul writes, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. So humility is not, is not something that you achieve. It's not some spiritual level that you rise up to. It's, it's not even something that you become. It, it is a conscious decision, a life focus, to die to your own desires and live for others. To recognize your own flaws and face them. To realize your own unworthiness before the Lord and rejoice in His grace. You know, there, there is no reason, absolutely no reason why God saved me except His grace. He did not look at me and think I was worth saving, so He then decided to forgive me. Very commonly taught these days in an effort to try to build our supposed self-esteem. And by telling ourselves, I was so valuable to God that He saved me. The Bible doesn't teach that. God didn't see something in me that made me valuable to Him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, In my flesh dwells no good thing. There is no reason why God saved me except by His grace. Except His grace. No reason that God saved you except His grace. And when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, as James wrote, we are recognizing that. So how does Jesus teach the concept of, of humility to his disciples. We want to read our text here this morning, Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin to read in verse 30, and then we will uh, go up to verse 41. By the time we're done today, I want to share with you five principles of humility. Five principles of humility. But follow along as I read the text, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30 up to verse 41. Then they, when they departed from there and passed through Galilee, he did not want his, anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus says, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. I want to focus our attention for a moment on, on verse 31 as we work our way through this text. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, 
he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. I want to focus with you for just a moment, focus our attention on the word betrayed, or that phrase, betrayed into the hands of men. Sometimes it's translated in other places, delivered into. Same word, same Greek word, translated either delivered into or betrayed into the hands of men. It's repeated many times in relation to the Lord Jesus. It, it is a technical word that is used for a criminal being handed over to judgment and punishment and perhaps execution. It, it, it's, a, it's a legal term, and the use of it here implies that the execution of the Lord Jesus, as he's teaching it, is going to be in some way a legal act, turning over a guilty criminal for judgment, but also implying that, to use a, a modern phrase, somebody rats them out, we, we could say. Not just betray them, but betray them into the hands of the law. Matthew uses that same term, so does Luke. Jesus is basically telling his disciples, remember he's told them already he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. But he's basically telling them now that, that there's somebody who is going to sell him out. Somebody is going to go behind his back and see to it that he gets delivered over to the authorities who hate him. Now the question is, who, who delivers him over? Who betrays him into, as the phrase goes. Who does that? Who's responsible for that? Who's guilty for that? Well, we already know the answer to that question in part from what we looked at a few weeks ago, chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said, I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So the scribes and the chief priests who constitute the Sanhedrin, the political ruling body of the Jews, they are the ones who are going to deliver him over to be killed. And yes, indeed they do. But you know, according to Matthew 27, 2, it says, it says the Jewish leaders delivered him to Pilate, but it isn't just them. How about Judas? According to Matthew 26, 24, he says the Son of Man is, go, is to go just as it has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is delivered or betrayed. That's referring to Judas. So Judas played a role in delivering him up. The Jewish leaders played a role in delivering him up. How about Pilate? Pilate played a role. Matthew 27, 26 says Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So starting with Judas who delivers him up to the Jewish authorities, who then deliver him up to Pilate. Pilate delivers him up to the military ex executioners. But you know, the real backstory behind that, you don't quite get until Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts, two, Acts chapter 2, where Peter stands up and says to all of those thousands of Jewish men there, he says, this man, meaning Christ, he was delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God also delivered him up. God the Father. Judas delivered him up. The Jews delivered him up. The Romans delivered him up. And after that he's crucified. He was delivered into the hands of men. Judas put him into the hands of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders put him into the hands of Pilate. Pilate put him into the hands of the Roman executioners. And in the end they killed him. And according to Acts 3.13 as well, and Peter's preaching to a crowd of Jewish people, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you, speaking to the Jewish crowd, you delivered up, you delivered him up and disowned him in the presence of Pilate. So who betrayed or delivered Jesus into the hands of sinful men? Judas Iscariot, the Jewish political leaders, Pilate, representing the Roman government, and 
God the Father himself delivered up his son to die for our sin. And according to Peter's message in Acts chapter 3, whose sin put Jesus on the cross? Mine and yours. So that little phrase, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. A beautiful, a powerful phrase filled not only with theology, but filled with meaning and purpose for us. My sin and your sin put Jesus on that cross. However, when he says he's, he has been killed, he also told his disciples he's going to rise three days later. And as we've talked about before, they struggled with this. It wasn't that they didn't know what resurrection was. Jesus had the power to literally raise the dead. They'd seen him do that. But if Jesus is dead, who raises him? That, I think, is one of their issues, as well as their, their hopes of a Messiah bringing them political de deliverance. They just could not make sense of it all. But they, as the scripture says here, they were all afraid to ask him, afraid to ask the question. So instead, they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That's quite a switch, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Somebody's going to sell me out and they're going to kill me. And it just goes right over their head. They're afraid to talk about it. And they had this long discussion on the, on the walk back to, 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 uh, to Capernaum. Who's going to be the greatest of the kingdom? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's you. I'm closer to Jesus. And they have this, have this argument over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so when they get to Capernaum, we presume to, possibly to Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house. That's where they stayed often in, in Capernaum. Jesus says, hey, uh, what were you fellows discussing and debating when we were traveling along the road today? And just look at it. Uh, well, uh, like a kid in the cookie jar, huh? Hey, what did you just do? So, uh, nothing. Nothing. No, I'm not fine. Yeah. What were you guys discussing on the road today? Oh, 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 oh. Of course, Jesus knew. So here comes the lesson. You want the blessing of God? You want to be great in the kingdom? Jesus says this. Verse 35. He sat down, called the twelve, said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, you want the blessing of God? You want to be great in the kingdom? He says, serve. And, and the word that he says, it was, be a servant of all, it's not the most common word for servant. Most of the time in the New Testament, they use the Greek word doulos. It means a, a, actually a slave. This is the word diakonos. It's the word that translated deacon in Paul's writings. One who ministers, one who serves others. Jesus says the ones who are great in the kingdom are not the ones who give orders and expect people to serve them. It is the ones who put themselves at the bottom of the list, at the end of the line, and they serve others' needs. And that's our first principle on humility. Humility, the true humility, is not self-focused. There, there is no self-focus in the heart of humility. Life is not about me. Life is not about what I want. Life is not about my desires. I am not self-focused. I am not consumed with what I think I have to have for me. There's no self-focus in the heart of humility. And the second principle kind of woven into that same statement by the Lord Jesus is that humility does not seek recognition. 
Humility is not trying to figure out how I can get to the top of the list, how I, how I can beat out the other guy, how I can be seen every time I do something nice, how I can get the honored position next to Jesus. Humility is not self-focused, and humility does not seek recognition. Jesus says, you want to be first? You guys arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You want to be great in the kingdom? Then he said, be last and serve everybody. Because humility does not have a self-focus and it does not seek recognition. But Jesus goes even further in his illustration in verses 36 and 37. He takes a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now the word for use for little child here indicates what we would think of as a toddler, a two or three three-year-old. A child at that stage of life has no achievements, no accomplishments other than holding a spoon and learning to walk, no greatness, no educational brilliance. A little child is weak and dependent and vulnerable and has nothing to offer in a relationship other than love. They're still requiring an enormous amount of oversight and care. They're just little people. And I don't think Jesus is necessarily speaking of accepting actual little children, but I think perhaps accepting people who have nothing to offer you in return and doing so for the sake of the Lord Jesus. You may remember Jesus saying that we have to become like little children if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, meaning we have total trust. We recognize our total inability to save ourselves. We're weak. We're vulnerable. That's the way that we come to Jesus. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in another place, unless you become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Unless you recognize your weakness and your inability and your vulnerability, he, he said, you're not ready to come to me. You're not ready for forgiveness. As long as you keep clinging to some little hope that you can do something for yourself to make, to, to make you, you worthy of me to, to, to forgive you. He said, you're not ready. You have to become like a little child in order to come to me. So Jesus now takes this little two or three year old, puts him in the middle of the disciples. Maybe it was one of Peter's kids. Or it may have been Peter's house. And sets him down there and says, unless you receive Little children like this. People with no ability to do anything for you. See, all you guys are walking down the road for the last several hours arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He said, I want you to learn to receive people who can give nothing back to you in return. You remember the Lord Jesus possibly could also be saying that the way, that the way we treat our fellow believers is the way we're treating him. You may remember Jesus said to Saul, who became the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was in heaven. But he's saying that the way Saul was treating the followers of Jesus was the way he was treating Jesus. So maybe Jesus is also saying that the way we treat our fellow believers is the way we're treating him. What a powerful lesson 
It must have been for Jesus' disciples. Here you are, he says, trying to promote yourselves above each other, arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom instead of becoming the servant of each other. And if you receive each other, the word receive means to be kind to, to show hospitality toward. Some of you remember the story of Rahab in Hebrews chapter 11. You remember the Old Testament story. When, when, when Rahab took the spies into her house and hid them and helped them to get out of the city. When Hebrews 11 talks about Rahab, it says she received the spies. In other words, she was kind to them. She showed hospitality toward them. That's the same word that Jesus uses here. If you receive each other. You are kind. You show hospitality toward them. Then he said, you are receiving me. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. Which brings us to principle number three. Humility shows kindness for the sake of the Lord Jesus. We serve for the sake of of the Lord Jesus. As Jesus said in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Humility is not self-focused. Humility is, is, is showing kindness for the sake of the Lord Jesus, serving for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And then John brings up a related issue. Now, when you read that, you may think, uh, what's, what's the connection there? But notice in verse 38, it says, John answered him. John is responding to what Jesus says. He brings up this related issue. I, I think he understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And so he tells about a fellow who was casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus, but he wasn't a part of their group. So he says, Lord, we just, we just told him to knock it off. I mean, he's not, he's not a part of our group. How come he's casting out demons in your name? I think he was looking for clarification from the Lord. He said, Lord, you just told us to receive each other, but this guy wasn't part of our group. What about him? We're supposed to receive him too? He's, he's not in our club. Jesus says, yes. He says, if he's serving in my name, he's not going to turn around and curse me. He said, if he's not against us, he's on our side. Which brings us to principle number four. Humility is not competitive. And we're not talking about sporting events. We're talking about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone is preaching the biblical gospel, we are not in competition with them. They might not be in our club. They might not be in our little group. But if they are preaching the biblical gospel, they're on our, they're on our team. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6 says. We are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil. People are not the enemy. And Jesus says, if he's casting out demons in my name, if he's performing miracles in my name, he says, he's not going to turn around and curse me. He's, he's, he's on our side. So yes, you have to receive him too. Humility is not competitive. You know, I've been, I've been hanging around Bible-preaching churches since I was in diapers. And when I got old enough to sense what was going on, which was somewhere in that 5th, 6th, 7th grade time period, I came to realize that there can be a real spirit of competition among God's people regarding their service and place in the local church. And in the words of James chapter 3, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Humility is not competitive. Humility shows kindness for the sake of the Lord Jesus. 
Humility is not self-focused. It does not seek recognition. And finally, our fifth principle about humility. Humility is seen and blessed by God. Look at verse 41 once again, if you would, please. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. See, the, the disciples have reward on the brain. Greatness equals glory equals reward. So I want to be great in the kingdom because that's going to bring me glory and that's going to bring me reward. They, they, they want the payoff. Kingdom glory, man, there's nothing better than that. Glory and exaltation and elevation. Jesus says humility is basically sacrificial love toward those who bear the name of Christ. You see, the fear was in their culture, and certainly the fear is in our culture as well. If I humble myself, I'm going to lose. This is competition. I've got to win. You've got to be first. We've got to be first. And if I end up at the bottom, it means that I lost. If I'm last, I lose. If I serve, I lose. If I sacrifice, I lose. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. If you serve, if you sacrifice, if you give, if you show kindness to those who can't return it, if you serve those who carry the name of the Lord Jesus, you're not going to lose. You're going to gain. You're going to win. The simple act of sacrificial kindness to someone who belongs to Christ, Jesus says, will result in more than you can ever achieve by promoting yourself. Why? Because God sees it. And God is keeping track. We don't need to keep score. God has a perfect logbook. He knows what we do and he knows why we do it. And he knows what we don't do and why we don't do it. God, God's logbook is perfect. And Jesus says, Who, whoever can even just give you a drink of water in my name because you belong to me, they will not lose their reward. And he says, I keep track. I know. And I want to close with a verse that's been a very blessed encouragement to me over the years. And that's Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. If we could take a look there as we wind up our thoughts today. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. If you are a Bible highlighter or underliner and you have never previously marked this verse, I would encourage you to do so. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. I, I love, love, love this verse. Great encouragement when the days are dark and things don't seem to be going the way that you wish. And you feel like you've been perhaps taken advantage of. Or you feel like you're losing your grip. Or you feel like something was, uh, was misunderstood or whatever. It, it, it's, it's a fabulous verse. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love in which you have shown, which you have shown toward his name. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Let me read it again to you. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. How did we do that? He says you ministered to the saints and you're still doing it. And you do minister. You're still ministering to it. You see, humility is not self-focused. 
It does not seek recognition. It serves for the sake of the Lord Jesus. It is not competitive. And God will not forget your labor of love. He has a perfect logbook. God will never forget what you have attempted to do for him. So keep doing it, Paul says. You have, you have ministered to the saints, and you do minister. Continue going on for the Lord Jesus Christ. God will not forget your labor of love. Let's pray. Lord, you know we all struggle with pride. It's so sneaky. It's so subtle. It shows itself in the most surprising, unexpected ways. And we know as we uh, deal with our fallen nature, our old sin nature that's still packing around in our physical bodies, we know we all struggle with pride. Lord, help us to focus on you and focus on serving you and to remember all that you have taught your disciples that we are, we are not to be self-focused. We are not to be seeking recognition. We just serve for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not in competition with anybody except the devil himself as we try to, to stand for you and, and do the things that are right. And Lord, we rejoice in this thought that you will not forget our labor of love. I know, Lord, that as we try to serve you, it is inevitable that sooner or later people will say something or do something we will feel taken advantage of, we will feel uh, maligned in some way, we will feel misunderstood in some way. People we try to help don't, uh, don't respond as we wish they would. And it's very easy for us, Lord, in the pride of our own hearts to say, well, that's it for me. Not doing anything else for them. We don't even pray for them anymore. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember that you have a perfect logbook. You keep track and you will not forget our labor of love. So it will help us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us as individuals and as a church body. May we continue to reach out to others. May we continue to do what you want us to do. And if we're going to be great in the kingdom, Lord, you said serve. Be last of all and the servant of all. Help us, we pray, Lord. We certainly need it. In Jesus' name, amen.